You're listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. And I want to talk to you about the practice of communion today. You know, just about a year ago, we started sharing communion every single week on a weekly basis. And I figure maybe it's time to talk about it. Let's talk about what we're doing, you know. Uh, I've occasionally heard people, not necessarily in our church, but I've heard people who express the concern if we do communion too often, if we, for example, if we do communion on a weekly basis, I'm afraid that we'll lose the purpose of it. It'll just become rote. It'll become, it'll lose some of its meaning. And I think that's a kind of an interesting observation because we never think that way about anything else we do. We pray together every week. We sing together every week. We hear, we hear the word every single week. There's a lot of things we do on a weekly basis, but I don't ever hear anybody express the same concern about those things. So I think perhaps maybe what, we, what might be a better approach is let's talk about it. In fact, let's every so often talk about it so that it'll be fresh and meaningful to us uh, on a regular basis. So that's what we're going to do. And I'm going to tell you on the front end, this is kind of a tricky sermon to preach. It may be the trickiest sermon I've ever preached at Village Church uh, because it's going to be very easy if I'm not careful, you're going to hear something that I'm not saying. So I want to I pay special attention to how I'm communicating this morning, but I'm also going to ask you for a little bit of mercy today and uh, listen to the entire sermon and then evaluate what I'm saying because there's a lot of things I need to say and I can't say it all at once in one sentence. So give me a little bit of grace. Let me develop the sermon. Let me develop the points. And then by the end, hopefully it'll be very clear what I mean and what I don't mean. All right? Okay. Thank you for the few that agree. And um, we will, we will, I think it'll go well, but, but it is tricky, man. You guys got to let me, let me develop this. So let's look at our text this morning. It's not the only text. We're going to actually look at a couple passages beyond this one, but just to kind of give us an anchoring point, uh, kind of a place to start, I want to look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. This is a very, 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 very important verse as it relates to this topic. Paul says, the cup of blessing that we bless... Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Now this practice that we're going to observe at the end of our service, it's been historically known by three different terms. First is communion, which comes from the Greek word koinonia. And it's actually right in this verse that we just read. Basically, you can insert it wherever you see the word participation. Paul's like, okay, is not this cup that we bless, is not this bread that we break, is it not the koinonia, our koinonia with the body and blood of Christ, or communion? In this translation, it was translated participation. In the NRSV, which is what I typically use when I preach, it translates it our sharing. So that's what communion is and what it relates to it is our participation and sharing in the body and blood of Christ just using Paul's language there another term is the Lord's Supper and you actually find that in the very next chapter of Paul's letter here 
In the very next chapter, chapter 11, Paul refers to it as the Lord's Supper, which specifically reminds us of the Last Supper, where Jesus institutes this practice. So there's communion, there's the Lord's Supper, and then finally, there is the term Eucharist. Eucharist is a Greek word, untranslated. We just kind of adopted it into our parlance. But Eucharist is a Greek word that means thanksgiving, and as far as we can tell, it's one of the earliest terms, if not the earliest term, that Christians used to refer to this practice. It goes back at least as far as 100 AD, but probably much earlier than that. So those are the three common terms that we use. Now, I want to define some terms with you today as we get started. And I want to give you, I think, a very simple, solid working definition of communion. So we'll put it up here on the screen. Communion is the sacrament. Everybody say sacrament. Communion is the sacrament by which Christians partake of the body and blood of Christ. I'm taking Paul's language and just forming it into this definition. It is the sacrament by which Christians partake of the body and blood of Christ. But I need to define at least one more word, and it's the word sacrament. What is a sacrament? Well, the word sacrament is very important. It comes from two different words that come from two different languages. Sacro, mysterion. Latin and Greek, respectively. And the term sacro mysterion means sacred mystery. Sacred is that which pertains to the divine, and mystery is that which we cannot fully explain. So if you say, what is a sacrament? And when we talk about communion being a sacrament, what is a sacrament? Sacrament is that which connects us to God in a way that we cannot fully explain. Now listen, here's something very important I want you to remember, not just for today, but just remember it. Christianity is a confession, not an explanation. Of course, we attempt to explain what we can, and sometimes people try to explain way more than we can, but we always, in the end, we always end up confessing more than we can explain. So when you think about some of the great mysteries of the Christian faith, the mystery of resurrection, the mystery of the incarnation, the mystery of the Trinity, you know, these are things that we can sort of conceptualize in our minds, but we cannot fully comprehend, let alone explain. You can't explain adequately how the Trinity works. You just can't. We confess it, but we can't explain it. And yet when we try to take these mysteries and we try to provide what we think is a comprehensive explanation, what ends up happening, first of all, is you mess it up inevitably. And then we end up with a very shallow, paper-thin Christianity, which is really not all that compelling. And if we want a thick, robust Christianity that will withstand the tidal wave of secularism, then we need to understand Christianity is a confession that we enter into. It is not an explanation. That'll help you, hopefully, not just today, but ongoing. So back to the word sacrament, sacred mystery. In the Christian faith, we universally recognize two sacraments across the entire universal body of Christ. There are two sacraments that we all agree on, baptism and communion. Now, water baptism is a one-time sacrament. It's not something you do over and over and over again. 
It is a one-time sacrament by which we are formally inducted into the body of Christ. Or you might say it this way. Baptism is like the um, naturalization ceremony for those who are being transferred from the kingdom of darkness over into the kingdom of light. All right, now I can go on and on about baptism. I'll say more next week. But for today, that's, that's enough. Baptism is a one-time sacrament by which we are formally inducted into the body of Christ. On the other hand, communion is an ongoing sacrament. Baptism, baptism is a one-time sacrament. Communion is an ongoing sacrament by which we partake in the body and blood of Christ using Paul's language. It's an ongoing sacrament by which we partake in the body and blood of Christ. Now, what I want to do today is I want to look at some scripture on communion. Then I'm going to give you a little bit of church history relating to communion. Then we're going to talk about the practice, and then we'll actually come to the table of the Lord. All right, sounds good? All right, you might as well say yes, because that's what we're going to do. Uh, let's go ahead and begin with Matthew 26, verse 26. This is the night of Jesus' betrayal. So he's gathered with the twelve in the upper room. Matthew 26, verse 26. While they were eating, Jesus took a loaf of bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will never again drink of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So Jesus makes this seminal confession, this huge pronouncement, breaks the bread. He says, this is my body broken for you takes the cup and says, this is my blood shed for you. And he connects it with the covenant of forgiveness. So in some way, what happens in this table as we partake in the bread and as we partake of the cup, it's the communication. Let's use that word communication. It's the communication to us of the covenant of forgiveness into our lives in such a way that is directly connected to what happened on the cross 2,000 years ago and the extension of forgiveness that comes through the cross. And notice how he ends it. Um, if you go back to that verse, verse 29, look at it. I want to come back to this in just a moment. He says, I tell you, I will never again drink of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now watch this. When Jesus is risen from the dead, he makes various appearances physically and tangibly to, to, to many witnesses. But when you think of the documented appearances that come to us in the Gospels, you, you think of, for example, when Jesus appears again in the upper room with the disciples. Then he appears to those two folks who are uh, walking down the road to Emmaus. And he has a conversation with them about the prophets, the scriptures, and he follows them into their house. They welcome him. And then there's the appearance on the shore of the Sea of Galilee in John 21. We talked about it last week where Peter gets so excited, he just dives into the sea and, and swims to shore. And I want you to notice in each one of the documented appearances following Jesus' resurrection, you'll notice a common thread. In each one of them, he's very intent on eating and drinking with them. Have you ever noticed that? It's, it's, it's clear. 
Jesus, the resurrected Christ, for whatever reason, he's very intent on sharing meals with them. So that later on, about 10 years later in Acts 10, Peter will say this in verse 11. He says, we are those who both ate and drank with Jesus. Go back to Acts 10. Following his resurrection. We are, bo- we are those who both ate and drank. That's for some reason to Peter that stuck out to him. Hey, we ate and drank. I mean, there's a lot of other things that happened. They talked about, they were taught, they were all of this stuff. But Peter says, we were the ones who ate and drank with him following his resurrection. Well, remember in the upper room, before he was arrested, Jesus says, I will not drink of the vine again until I drink it anew with you in my father's kingdom. And now we have Peter looking backwards 10 years later saying, we are those who ate and drank with him following the resurrection. So what does that tell us? I think it says to us that the kingdom of God, though it hasn't yet fully been consummated, it hasn't reached its fullest flowering and it won't until Jesus returns. But in some way, the kingdom of God has been inaugurated in the earth upon Jesus' resurrection. And, And that when we come to this table, we are coming in some sense to the real epicenter of the kingdom of heaven. And that Jesus meets us here to eat and drink with us. I love that. I'll talk more about that in just a moment. But the body and blood of Christ are communicated to the believer through the bread and wine of communion. That's one thing I want you to get today. Now on to John chapter 6. We're going to look at this one section in just a moment. But let me kind of set the context here. It's in John 6 where we find um, the Eucharistic theology of John. You know, John, just like the other gospel writers, he includes the Last Supper in the upper room, but he never mentions the bread and wine. He never talks about any of that. Instead, John's Eucharistic theology of the ministry of Jesus, we find it in John 6. And what happens is, on the day before, this is when Jesus multiplies the food. Remember, it says there were 5,000 men in this crowd. If you count the women and children, well over 10,000 people. And Jesus takes five loaves of bread and two fish, multiplies it, feeds the whole crowd. And then they got 12 basketfuls left over and all of that. That's for a whole nother sermon. But he just has done this amazing miracle, this amazing sign. The very next day, Jesus is teaching in Capernaum in the synagogue. And some folks come to him and say, give us a sign. You know what you did yesterday when you did that really cool thing, that little trick where you multiplied all that food? Why don't you do what you did yesterday again? We want to see that again, Jesus Copperfield. And, um, and here's how Jesus responds. He says, he says if, that, if that's all I do, if all I do is perform these kinds of spectacular signs and feed you with that kind of bread, you're, you're going to die. If that, my whole ministry is about doing that you're going to die. But if you'll eat my flesh and drink my blood, you're going to be raised to eternal life. And of course, they were all freaked out when he said that, as people are today. And here's what it says. Let's pick it up in verse 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? I'm going to pause right there. Whenever the church has tried to answer the question, how does this happen? How does Christ in communion give us his flesh to eat? What happens is exactly what happened to these people. It results in all kinds of disputes. For example, when Thomas Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas was a 13th century theologian, and he was a brilliant man. But he made a critical mistake 
when he articulated, he attempted to articulate how the bread and wine of communion directly connects to the flesh and blood of Christ. And he propagated a doctrine called transubstantiation, where he taught that the bread and the wine literally physically turns into the flesh and the blood of Christ. And what ended up happening, it was unintended, but it ended up making a mockery of the whole thing, and it resulted in all kinds of unnecessary disputes that never needed to happen. He didn't need to do that. Just let it be what it is, a sacrament, a sacred mystery. It's enough to just confess, hey, this is, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you, and just leave it there. And see, here's my, my, my tension this morning, is on one hand, I want to be very careful. I don't want you to hear me. I don't want you to leave this place thinking, was Ryan talking about this? Does he mean that it literally turns into the flesh and blood of Jesus? That's kind of gross. Is he teaching or is he wanting us to believe in this doctrine of transubstantiation? I just want to say emphatically, no. Turn to your neighbor and says, that's not what he's saying. That's not what I'm saying. I am not saying that. But what I do want to do is I want you to, I want to help you recover a sacramental theology. Remember, what is a sacrament? Something that connects us to God in a way that we cannot fully explain. So when we come forward, what's not happening, this is not what's happening. We're not coming forward and just simply eating a piece of bread, drinking a cup of grape juice, because that's what it is, by the way, and then uh, thinking some good thoughts about what Jesus did 2,000 years ago, and we're going along our way. That's not what's happening. No, we are coming and we are encountering Jesus. There's something supernatural happening that we cannot, cannot explain. But this is not just going through the motions, eating bread and drinking juice and thinking good thoughts. No, we are coming to have a sacramental encounter with Jesus. Amen. So they say, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And I want you to notice Jesus does not answer their question, and maybe we shouldn't either. He just reasserts his confession. Verse 53, so Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood, and I want you to know that there's a sense of continuation here. This is an ongoing uh, engagement. Those who continue to eat my flesh and drink my blood, have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me, and I in them. So we come to the table of the Lord, and we feed on the body of Christ, that we might, by his ongoing grace working in our lives, that we might become the faithful body of Christ in the world. We eat of his flesh, and we drink of his blood, so that we might by his grace and by his ongoing power in our lives, that we might become the flesh and blood of Christ in the world. We partake of this incarnational sacrament that we might become the incarnation of Christ in the world. Now, a little bit of history. Right from the very beginning of church history, from the very birth of the church, the earliest Christians adopted baptism and communion instantly into their practice. I mean immediately, literally on day one, 
on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, they immediately began baptizing those who were confessing Christ as Lord. And every single Lord's Day, the first day of the week, they met together in their worship gatherings, and the culmination was partaking together in communion. And so that these two sacraments became immediately ingrained into their uh, practice. We see that in the scriptures. We also see that clearly in the earliest Christian documents. And communion in particular was really the central aspect of Christian worship and connectedness with Christ. That's how they understood it. Now today, if I were to ask you, why do you come to church? Most of you might say something like, well, I come to church so I can worship in song with my brothers and sisters and hear a sermon. And those are good things, right? You better say right, because that's kind of what I do for a living. <laughs> it's kind of important to me. So singing together in worship and hearing instruction in the word, these are important things. And the early church was doing these things as well. But if you were to ask them, why do you come to these gatherings on the Lord's day? They would have probably said, I come to partake in the body and blood of Christ. I come to partake of the Eucharist. That was their primary central emphasis, at least for the first several hundred years of the church. They, they understood that this is, this is a sacramental way by which I enter into this mystery and abide in, in Christ. By the way, that's why excommunication was such a powerful threat in the early church. Excommunication was not about, uh, okay, you can't come and hang out with us anymore. That wasn't the point. The point was you are no longer, you are cut off from the body and blood of our Lord. And you're no longer welcome to the table. And you see, that was a very, very, very powerful thing. And it would hopefully at times cause people to rethink their lives and repent and all of that. But then things began to change. And by medieval times, the Middle Ages, I'm talking about the 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th centuries. In that span of time, the practice of communion fell away, especially amongst non-clergy. And partaking of communion became a once-a-year thing on Easter, and that was it. And that was true not only in the Roman Catholic tradition, it was also true in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, which were the only two options at that time, by the way. But in both the West and in the East, the practice of communion became a one-time thing. And this is interesting. Most people don't know this. It was actually the Protestant reformers, Luther and Calvin, who restored the practice of weekly communion. That wasn't the Catholics who did that. They took communion once a year. The reformers said, no, we're going to do it weekly. And in fact, if Luther and Calvin had had their way, it would have been a daily practice if it were possible. But they wanted it to be weekly. Every time we gather, we're going to partake in the body and blood of Christ. And then 200 years later comes along John Wesley, the revivalist, who you could maybe think of as sort of like the founder of evangelicalism. Now, uh, evangelicalism doesn't really have one clear founder as, as we can identify with the Reformation, but if you were to choose like one single representative from the founding days of evangelicalism and revivalism, it would certainly be John Wesley. And John Wesley, just like Calvin and Luther, he affirmed weekly communion. He believed in it and he practiced it. And he even called it a means of grace, meaning it's, it's a material connection with the grace of God. 
And Wesley said this, he said, it is the duty of every Christian to receive the Lord's Supper as often as he can. Who said that? The Pope? No, John Wesley. So it's just very interesting to me that it was the Protestant reformers. Some of you are Protestants, most of you, okay? The Protestant reformers restored the practice of weekly communion. And Wesley believed in weekly communion and practiced it and called it a means of grace. And none of those three figureheads, none of those leaders saw communion as merely symbolic. They rejected transubstantiation, but they all confessed the real presence of Christ, the sacramental presence of Christ in communion. Now, what's happened in modern times, and when I say modern, I mean maybe starting about 500 years ago, but especially in the last couple hundred years, is we in modern evangelicalism almost exclusively have come to see communion strictly as symbolic. Kind of our thinking, it goes like this. You know, what we're doing, we're just reenacting. We just come forward, we reenact the sacrificial death of Christ, and it's really just a memorial. We're just remembering what Jesus did, but it's purely symbolic. That's, that's the way a lot of us think. And I want you to know, I want you to be clear where that thinking comes from. It doesn't come from the scriptures. It doesn't come from the apostles. It doesn't come from the early church or the church fathers. It doesn't come from the Protestant reformers. It doesn't come from the evangelical revivalists. It comes from the Enlightenment. That's where it comes from. It comes from Voltaire and Nietzsche. This idea that we're modern, rational, enlightened people today. Those ancient people, they didn't know any better, but we've got it figured out. And if we can't empirically prove it in a test tube, we've got to reject it or ignore it or at least hold it in suspicion and just not really think too much about it. And that is what really primarily influenced this theological move in modern times to see communion as purely symbolic. And I don't think we want to conspire with that. So I'm just going to say it as clearly and as bluntly as I can. Communion is supernatural, folks. Communion is not merely symbolic. Communion is supernatural. And you see, that ought to fire you up when you come forward to partake in the bread and blood, or bread and wine. That ought to fire you up, man, that you're having in some sacramental, mysterious way, you're having an encounter with Jesus. In our technological age, in our pragmatic culture where pretty much nothing is sacred any longer, there's an ache in the soul of modern human beings for mystery, for something sacred. And that's what we offer every week here on the table of the Lord. If I were to, if you and I were to go back in a time machine, find Peter and find Paul, put a bag over their heads and kidnap them, and bring them forward here to 2024 Burbank, California, and let them come and join us for one of our worship gatherings. So imagine Peter and Paul sitting there up in the balcony with you guys. There's a lot of stuff that they would not understand that we do. They would, they would be in this room and they would be like, what? These people are nuts. What are these people doing? And why is this guy's voice so loud even though he's talking a normal voice? You know, what is this? What is this? There's a lot that we do in our service they wouldn't get. But at the end of our service, when we come forward to partake in a common loaf and a common cup, that's the one thing Peter and Paul would say, oh, I know what that is. 
I get it now. That's the body and blood of our Lord. See, if we had a service where we didn't offer that, Peter and Paul would say, okay, there was instruction in the word, there was singing and all of that, but you didn't offer communion? You didn't offer the Lord's Supper? You didn't offer the blood, but body and blood of our Lord? What's going on? So that's why we've come here in, in the last year. We offer it over 100 times a year now. And I can't imagine, it's just me, I just can't imagine not offering that in a service. I've just gotten to be addicted to it. So we don't hand it out either. You know, we used to, when I first got here, people were still, we were still uh, coming out of COVID or whatever. And, and so we handed it out in the plastic cups with the styrofoam wafers, you know, the individual packets. And I understand why we had to do that and all that. But that's, that was really a concession to the moment that we were in. But we don't do that anymore. We share a common cup and a common loaf. Now, if you're here for the first time, let me explain. I will explain. But what's going to happen is we want you to come forward. We don't just give it to you. You come forward. We want you engaged in this. And you're going to see in just a moment there will be two people on either side. There will be somebody in the back in the balcony. And there will be a person with pre-cut bread. Pre-cut bread. Gluten-free bread. And then there will be a person standing next to them with a cup. And you're going to take a piece of that pre-cut bread and you're going to dip the end of it in the cup. And then you'll circle back to your seat. And by the way, I try to mention this every time. Everybody's invited to come. I don't care who you are. Nobody's excluded. We want you to come to the table of the Lord. Why? Because it's the table of the Lord, not the table of the church. We don't do this in the name of the church. We do this in the name of Jesus, and Jesus will share his table with anyone who will sit down with him. So are you hungry spiritually? Are you thirsty? Are you longing? Do you need grace? Do you need mercy? Do you need strength for your journey? Come, and let's commune with the body and blood of our Lord, as Paul says. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.